This is the Green Street News, the environmental health show and podcast. Patty and Doug Wood and our worldwide network of experts with your weekly update on what in the world is happening and how it may impact your life. Welcome back. Space has always been the stuff of dreams. And for a small group of people, those dreams are about money and power. How can we use space to make more money? How can we build an arsenal of space-based weapons that will guarantee our complete domination over the world? Those are the dreams of some people, and unfortunately, a lot of those dreams seem to be coming true. That story, and Patty with the Week's headlines, all coming up on this edition of Green Street News. Stay with us. Patty Wood. So what are the headlines from the environmental health world this week? It was a very big week for environmental health yeah, issues. I know yeah, it was. Yeah. yeah, this is probably the most important one. And this was published in The Guardian, written by Justin McCurry and Helen Davidson. The title is China Bans Japanese Seafood After Fukushima Wastewater Release. Japan has begun discharging more than one million tons of tainted water into the Pacific Ocean from the wrecked Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant in a move that has prompted China to announce an immediate blanket ban on all seafood imports from Japan and sparked anger in nearby fishing communities. The plant's operator, Tokyo Electric Power, or TEPCO, pumped a small quantity of water from the plant on Thursday, two days after the plan was approved by Japan's government. Live video showed engineers behind computer screens and an official saying after a countdown that the valves near the seawater transport pumps are opening. Can you imagine? Did you see the tanks that we're talking about? These are gigantic. It looks like oil, you know, oil storage tanks, and there are hundreds of them. Yeah. Monitors from the UN Atomic Watchdog, which has endorsed the plan, were due to be on site for the procedure, while TEPCO workers were scheduled to take water samples later on Thursday. The discharge, which is expected to take 30 to 40 years, has caused anger in neighboring countries and concern among fishermen that it will destroy their industry as consumers steer clear of seafood caught in and around Fukushima. On Thursday, China's customs agency announced it would, quote, completely suspend the import of aquatic products originating in Japan effective immediately in order to prevent the risk of radioactive contamination of food. You can't blame them. I mean, nobody wants to eat radioactive, you know, shellfish and other things that come from the water. I mean, this is a really serious Problem. They're releasing tritium. They're releasing tritiated water, which yeah. is water that contains tritium. And you can't filter that out. You can't it's there get forever. rid of tritium. It's there forever. And there's claiming that it is not that dangerous. You know, it's interesting. We were. Uh, I was listening to Dr. Gordon Edwards, who was saying, in a stainless steel container, tritium will naturally decompose over a hundred years, basically, to almost nothing. Right. So why not put it in stainless steel containers and let it? Sit there for a hundred years. Sit there for a hundred years. Better than putting it into the water where it's going to contaminate things. So the Beijing's foreign ministry said in a statement, quote, the ocean is the common property of all humanity and forcibly starting the discharge of Fukushima's nuclear wastewater into the ocean is an extremely selfish and irresponsible act that ignores international public interests. By dumping the water into the ocean, Japan is spreading the risks to the rest of the world and passing an open wound onto future generations of humanity, end quote. Okay, and we need to stop here and say this same thing 
is maybe going to happen uh, just north of New York City at the Indian Point Nuclear Power Facility. That's correct. Governor Hochul has signed legislation that prohibits the dumping of tritiated water into the Hudson River, but Holtec has basically said they're going to do it anyway and pay the fine. It's <laughs> unimaginable that they say we're going to do it anyway. Anyway, people are very concerned about this possibility. And, and, and rightly so. Sure. We should be very concerned. I mean, there are communities that use the Hudson River as a drinking water source, as well as fishermen and, you know, people recreate there, and boating and swimming. I mean, the amount of tritiated water at Indian Point is not nearly the amount that's at Fukushima. I mean, Yeah, but also the Hudson River isn't quite as large as the Pacific Ocean. Good point. One way or another, they're going to contaminate the water and we all have to deal with it. You know, it's one of these things where they're going to do it and then we're going to find out. And there are still people talking about building more nuclear power plants. When will we ever learn? Okay, what else you got? Okay, so this is an important one also. We've talked about this before, but it's worth uh, listening to this perspective, which is a different one. This is published in Environmental Health News, written by Stephen Stevick, and it's an opinion piece entitled How Toxic Fertilizers Create Toxic Municipal Bonds. Sea level rise due to climate change presents an existential threat to coastal towns and cities as they experience a steady gnawing away of their land boundaries and with it the tax revenue of washed away property and infrastructure. Agricultural communities like their seaside sisters also face an existential threat from land permanently rendered toxic because of toxic laden industrial and urban sewage sludge also known as biosolids used as fertilizer. But by simply not using sewage sludge, the threat to farming communities is avoidable. For most of them, there may still be time to reduce, if not avoid altogether, the risk of permanent harm to agricultural lands and its impact on human health and the environment. Thanks to national, state, and local programs, agricultural lands are the go-to disposal sites for sewage sludge, which is being produced in ever-increasing volume and levels of toxicity. The Environmental Protection Agency is the federal agency charged with protecting the public and the environment from adverse effect of exposure to sewage sludge. The EPA assumes sewage sludge to be harmless until proven otherwise. It is labeled by the EPA as biosolids and is provided free of charge to farmers to fertilize their farmland. For agricultural communities, the offer of free fertilizer is difficult to refuse. For urban and industrial regions, the disposal of sewage sludge on agricultural land as fertilizer is a relatively convenient and cheap solution. However, the recent and alarming revelation of PFAS in sewage sludge is calling into question the assumption of harmless biosolids. PFAS, short for purin polyfluoroalkyl substances, belong to a class of highly toxic chemicals developed in the mid-20th century. They are carcinogens and endocrine disruptors. Financial markets are watching closely. The prospect of farmland laden with PFAS and any of the many toxics potentially found in sewage sludge lends a more literal meaning to the term toxic assets. The current and long-term well-being of agricultural lands determine the community's economic well-being and taxable income. The use of toxic fertilizer threatens their ability to meet current operational and structural expenses as well as long-term debt obligations. Yeah, this is where your tax your tax base comes from the value of your land. And for agricultural communities, that's the farmland. And when that farmland can no longer be used for farming, 
What else is left? It's not like they're going to build apartments there. There's not much use to that land, and the value of that land plummets, and there goes your tax base. So these communities are going to be really hurting to you know, provide roads and water and electricity to people. But then, of course, people may just have to move off that land completely because it's not usable for anything. Well, and the water beneath it is contaminated, too. So it's we are rendering millions of acres of farmland useless, which feeds our country. Yeah, you're going to end up with large swaths of the United States just barren and unusable. Because we've been dumping sewage sludge loaded with these toxic chemicals that are taken up into the vegetables and the fruits. And the companies that make those chemicals continue to make them today. They're, as we speak, I mean, they're manufacturing PFAS you know, and selling it as fast help, as they can. You can only help people that want to be helped. And this is just insanity. Okay, well, that's great. What else you got? Well, this is something that's kind of close to my heart because there are a lot of people that want urban gardens and urban farming. And I have always said it is the wrong place to grow food that you're going to give to your children and that you're going to eat. You just can't do it in a toxic environment. I saw this article on your desk. I thought, uh oh, Patty's been on this for a long time. So this is another another article that was published in EHN or Environmental Health News written by Meg St. Esprit. And it is entitled Growing Veggies in the City This Year. You may want to check your soil. Villanova University researchers tested 21 gardens in Pennsylvania, many built on former industrial sites, and found concerning levels of heavy metals, particularly lead. Five of the gardens were in Pittsburgh, and the rest were in the city and suburban areas of Philadelphia. The researchers found lead, zinc, copper, cadmium, nickel, vanadium, and arsenic. While all levels were below Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection guidelines, the researchers chose to focus on lead as it has the most negative effects on human health, and there is no safe level of lead exposure. The study raises questions about the health of urban community gardens in industrialized areas, as heavy metals like lead can absorb into the vegetables or contaminate them if the vegetables are not washed well. Children playing in the gardens are also at risk for ingesting lead that gets on their hands from the soil. The toxic metal causes attention problems, decreased IQ, increased problem behaviors, kidney disease, preeclampsia, and cardiovascular issues. I can go on and on and on, but the fact is that it's not just gardens that are planted on former industrial sites, but it's just the fact that they are in cities where you have an enormous amount of vehicular traffic. I was going to say, yeah. And the exhaust from those vehicles. And also you have all of those buildings that are burning fossil fuels Mm -hmm. and emitting not just toxic air pollutants, but also particulate matter that winds up in the soil where you know, I understand people who live in the city want to want, grow vegetables, want to grow vegetables yeah. and want to have green spaces. Sure. But those green spaces should be only green spaces where people can just like sit under a tree or their kids can, you know, maybe, you know, play on the grass, play, a, you know, a badminton or something. But they should not be growing vegetables that people are going to eat in any city. Yeah. And of course, Pollution stays around for a long time. Once it's in the soil, it could be it could have been from a hundred years ago, but it's in yeah, the soil but, still. But, you know, it's not all doom and gloom. You can actually, you know, do it if you're if you're kind of on the edges of the of the city and you use raised beds. That helps a little bit mm-hmm. so that you're not using soil and you can actually change the soil out every growing year. But wow, that's a I lot know. of work. I know. 
Yeah. It's not perfect. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. For most people, the phrase space race conjures up images of men and women in spacesuits strapping themselves into rockets to take off for faraway places. It has a tinge of romance to it, and for more than six decades it has captured the imagination of Americans and the American press in ways no other subject seems to do. But today there's a quiet race going on that neither Americans or the American press seems to be aware of. It's the race to dominate space with the machinery of war. The goal of this race is to build and maintain an arsenal of weapons that would make the United States the unquestioned champion and ruler of the world. If that sounds like the stuff of a child's dream or science fiction, it's not. Most people think of the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, or NASA, as the federal agency behind the famous Apollo missions to the moon, or the people who operate the space shuttle. But there's another side to NASA that most people don't think about. NASA was set up in 1958 ostensibly as a civilian agency. Uh, This is the year after Sputnik was launched. It quickly found uh, out where the money is in in Washington, D.C. That's the Pentagon. That's Carl Grossman, author of The Wrong Stuff, The Space Program's Nuclear Threat to Our Planet, and a follow-up book, Weapons in Space. Carl has spent much of his life teaching journalism, producing award-winning videos, and documenting the militarization of space, a field which he fell into almost by accident. I was reading a Department of Energy newsletter, basically, and it spoke of two planned space shuttle launches in 1986 being launched with plutonium-fueled space probes on them, and they were to uh, send these space probes, uh, once they achieved orbit, out into uh, into space. The one the Challenger was to uh, carry up on its next mission in May of 1986 was to uh, orbit the sun. I don't know why you needed a plutonium-powered space probe to orbit the sun, but in any case, it was the plan. And uh, this is 1985. I filed with um, the Department of Energy, NASA, The article went on to talk about studies being done uh, reflecting what could occur if there'd be an accident on launch in the lower atmosphere, the upper atmosphere, and so forth. And my FOIA request asked for the the findings. I mean, here, talking about plutonium on a, uh, a space shot, I knew well that plutonium has long been described as the most radioactive substance known. And I, I, I kind of didn't think much of it. Uh, I mean, I figured I'd get a response in, uh, under the FOIA uh, in a couple of weeks, but I didn't. And uh, the weeks passed by and months came and went. And finally, in late 85, I received the documentation. And I was kind of hesitant to go with it because NASA and DOE claimed in the documents that the likelihood of a catastrophic shuttle accident was one in 100,000. And, uh, I mean, these are odds that would make a uh, disaster in which plutonium would be released extremely unlikely. Uh, And I was actually driving to work 
to SUNY O. Westbader teach my investigative reporting class, a first class of the 1986 semester I hear on the car radio, that the Challenger blew up. I uh, st- stopped uh, at a PC Richards store, and I saw that, that horrible image on uh, dozens of TV screens of the Challenger uh, exploding. And what I was thinking was, well, what if it would be the next mission in May when it uh, was supposed to have pounds of plutonium on board? The Freedom of Information Act has been a great gift to the journalism profession and to the American people. It allows us to see inside our government agencies, to see how they work, how they make decisions, and who has been influencing those decisions. FOIA, as it's called, is one of the things Carl Grossman taught in his journalism course. I wrote a piece which was uh, titled The Lethal Shuttle. It appeared on the front page of The Nation, and, and that was the beginning. That was uh, how many years ago now? Uh, 35 years ago, and I've been on this story, if you want to call it a story, uh, ever since. Secretly launching rockets carrying plutonium seems to have been a regular activity of NASA and other countries engaged in the space race. And given the hazardous nature of blasting things into space, it's no surprise that there were some accidents, although fortunately, none that happened in heavily populated areas. In the documents I obtained, and these were under Exemption 1 to FOIA, whited out. Exemption 1 under FOIA, incidentally, is for uh, government can withhold information as a matter of national security. Pages and pages of pages in terms of how many deaths would have resulted if the plutonium would have been vaporized as dust in an explosion and spread widely, uh, how much land would be left irradiated. I've argued ever since in talking about that cover-up, that as a matter of national insecurity, uh, that information should have been uh, divulged. Meanwhile, in terms of the odds, the one in 100,000, it took just a couple of months before NASA and the Department of Energy changed the odds from one in 100,000 to one in 76. We've launched about 30 space nuclear shots, and uh, three have uh, involved uh, accidents, uh, the worst being the SNAP 9A accident in 1964. This was a satellite. At that time, uh, the satellites were energized by these plutonium systems that generate uh, electricity. They call radioisotope thermoelectric generators. And the SNAP 9A system and the satellite it was on uh, didn't achieve orbit, came crashing down to Earth, disintegrated upon hitting the atmosphere. Plutonium was spread all over the planet. It was long tied to uh, a rise in lung cancer, uh, that SNAP 9A accident. Again, that three out of 30, the uh, Soviets, now Russia, they've done, as far as I can tell, 60 space uh, nuclear shots, and six have met with accidents. In fact, my book, I have a book uh, that I wrote on all this called The Wrong Stuff, and it begins with the Russian Mars 96 space probe, feared landing in Australia. Uh, In the end, it came down, uh, disintegrated in a fireball over Chile. Uh, You don't know where these things, it's like throwing a, a nuclear dart at a dartboard. So Carl Grossman had learned and written about rockets going into space carrying plutonium and some of the close calls and actual accidents that had occurred. But the motive still wasn't clear. Why were we sending nuclear power systems into space? I kept wondering after I wrote those early pieces, 
like why? Why use nukes in space? And, uh, well, like in all the president's men, Deep Throat says, follow the money. This is what he tells Bob Woodward, uh, who's making a buck. And there was a little company called General Electric, which manufactured the RTG, the radioisotope thermoelectric generators. Then you have the National Nuclear Laboratories, uh, Los Alamos, Oak Ridge, and so They're looking for projects. They're looking for government money. And that, then what I bumped into, again, this is the 80s. This is the time of Star Wars, Ronald Reagan's Star Wars, that that was predicated on orbiting battle platforms with reactors on board, providing the energy for high-velocity guns, particle beams, and laser weapons. And I also, and uh, I, I quote General James Abramson, who was the commander of the so-called Strategic Defense Initiative at the time, Star Wars, saying at a conference, unless we have reactors in space, we're going to have to have a long extension cord down to Earth bringing up power because the weaponry we want to feel requires uh, large amounts of, of energy and the solution with nuclear power in space. Nuclear power in space. Nuclear power for weapons. That was the military's idea of how we should utilize or weaponize outer space. But there were others who saw space as a sacred place to be shared by all the people on Earth, a place to be protected, honored, even revered. In 1967, the Outer Space Treaty was proposed, known formally as the Treaty on Principles Governing the Activities of States in the Exploration and Use of Outer Space, including the Moon and other celestial bodies. It is a multilateral treaty that forms the basis of international space law. It was put together by the United States, the former Soviet Union, and the United Kingdom. Uh, it was enacted in 1967. It's been signed on to by most nations uh, on Earth. And what it did was set aside space as a global commons for peaceful purposes. It, it, it prohibited weapons of mass destruction in space. What they tried to do back then was to uh, prevent space from being weaponized before it was weaponized. Uh, the problem is, again, it just prohibited weapons of mass destruction. Uh, but what about laser weapons and hypervelocity guns and particle beams? So there's been an effort now, it's been going on for a couple of decades, uh, to uh, expand the Outer Space Treaty of 67 with what is called the Paros Treaty, of, which is Prevention of an Arms Race in Outer Space, Paros Treaty. And the leading country in pushing for the Paros Treaty has been our neighbor Canada. And we certainly can't distrust our neighbor Canada followed by Russia and China. And in my trips to Russia, they've made very clear, and I've been to China too, they made very clear that uh, they do not want to expend their national treasury on uh, deploying uh, weapons in space. And it isn't like uh, uh, purchasing a Bradley fighting vehicle. We're talking about billions of dollars. So they've, with Canada, have uh, tried now for decades to have the Paros Treaty enacted. And I've been at the UN and watched what's occurred. And nation after nation votes yes. And my country, the United States, votes no, effectively vetoing the Paros Treaty uh, at, at the U.N. It's, it's just, again, the Outer Space Treaty was visionary and set aside space as a, uh, as a global commons for peaceful purposes.
It's hard to turn on the TV or watch any video without seeing an ad for the new technology being pushed by telecoms, 5G. Even though your phone will work exactly as it does now, wireless companies are trying to convince you to buy a new 5G phone, as if it does something different than your old phone. But besides selling you new stuff, there's another more sinister reason for 5G, and it has to do with space. Despite what you hear in these TV commercials that just bombard us these days about 5G, the wonders of 5G, uh, this is a technology that presents huge health risks by blanketing the Earth with radiation, resulting in cancer, other illnesses, encouraging satellite collisions. I mean, uh, Elon Musk's and his SpaceX, they've been given a go-ahead uh, to launch tens of thousands of these satellites. And then further, there will be so many satellites that there will be collision between them, space debris. And what I've looked into in regard to 5G is the military connection. Uh, and the, it's, there's a big military connection. And well, one, one of the main reasons that the military is, is gung-ho for 5G is because it would provide for retargeting of the hypersonic missiles that the U.S. has been developing. Uh, these are missiles that fly at 3,600 miles per hour. So guiding them uh, to their trajectory uh, instantaneously is very important, and these things move so quickly. I mean, these hypersonic weapons that uh, fly at five times the speed of sound, so if there's an effort to alter their trajectory, it has to be done quickly, and 5G is seen as the way. The development of 5G to guide supersonic weapons in space is not the only incredibly dangerous idea being considered by those who think that space is a place for them to make money. There are other ideas being floated that truly are insane. The history of humanity is full of horrible things. Unfortunately, humanity most often only reacts after the horrible things occur. Just as an example, most of these SpaceX shots, this, is, this, this rocket that Elon Musk not only wants to uh, have astronauts uh, use to go to Mars, but also, and, and let me insert this, talking about crazy, Musk wants to uh, you know, have human settlements on Mars. I mean, instead of repairing the Earth, making this, this beautiful blue marble in space, uh, keeping it uh, livable, it's... it's uh, we're on tenderhooks there. Musk wants to uh, have humanity head off to Mars. And, and then he has this other plan uh, for Mars. I mean, go to the SpaceX website and you'll see, well, just Google Nuke Mars T-shirts. Musk is selling a T-shirt. It says Nuke Mars. You can buy it through the, the SpaceX. Because what Musk wants to do with Mars is to detonate 10,000 nuclear devices above both poles of Mars to make Mars somehow more Earth-like. I mean, this is his plan. And guess what kind of rocket would be carrying up his preferred weapon of choice? Hydrogen bombs? Like 10,000 hydrogen bombs? So where are we now with regard to the militarization of space? What's going on at the Pentagon and in space agencies in China and Russia? We're worried about nuclear weapons being used here on Earth, but what about a nuclear war in the skies over our heads? What kinds of plans are being drawn, and what kind of accidents are now possible that could change the trajectory of the world forever? It's come down now to greed, follow the money, 
and to fear that we got to get up there uh, before the Chinese and the Russians. And with this space force, that's been a real rationale. But again, I've been to these countries and uh, on these issues, and they don't want to blow their treasury on, on weaponizing space. But let me tell you, if we do, if this U.S. space force does what it seems to be heading to do, they're going to be up there too. They're going to be up there with weaponry as well. The Outer Space Treaty, this visionary treaty of keeping space for peace will be just blown apart. And our children and their children, if we can get that far, will live on a planet above which will be heavens that will be heavily armed. And imagine, consider a shooting war with a, a, a weaponized, a militarized space. If there is a shooting war in space, there'll be so much debris falling down on Earth including incidentally, not too incidentally, radioactive debris, we're not going to get be able to get up and out for millennia, if even then. If there is a war involving space, it'll be the last one. Carl Grossman, author of The Wrong Stuff, The Space Program's Nuclear Threat to Our Planet, and another book, Weapons in Space. Carl has spent much of his life teaching journalism, producing award-winning videos, and documenting the militarization of space. That's going to do it for our show today. Special thanks to our guest and friend, Carl Grossman, our news editor, Alan Weiniger, our engineer, Josh Wyman, our associate producer, Toby Ziegler, our social media director, Donna Moss, and our marketing director, Sam Seaborn. I'm Doug Wood. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Street News. Thanks for listening.